Well, I want to invite you to uh, turn this morning to the book of First Peter. I think you have heard the theme of First Peter emerging in the worship service this morning. I, I thought it would be appropriate to share the backstory of, of kind of what happened. Um, it was several days ago I got a hold of uh, Jason, Jason, the worship director, and I said, I wanted to let you know where we're going today and next week because the following week we'll begin in the book of Romans and be there for quite some time. And Jason responded to me and said, you're never going to believe it. The scripture that you're going to preach on is the scripture that I had planned on having the worship team read during the service. And so we're going to focus this morning on verses 18 and 19. And I will assume, based on that interaction between Jason and myself, the Lord has something very special for each of us this morning. Wouldn't you agree? In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, we have a, a series of imperatives that we'll look at in a moment. But I want to begin by asking for you to consider this question, what does it mean to live the Christian life? What, what, what is involved with it? How does God expect me to live my life? How does God expect me to respond to temptation? How does God respond me as a follower of Jesus to respond to adversity? And so in verses 13 to 17, the verses leading up to our passages that we will look very carefully in verses 18 and 19, we have three very important imperatives, three commands. The first is this. It's found in verse 13, if you want to glance at that for a moment. Peter commands, set your hope fully on the future grace that Christ commands. You see, the way that we Fix our hope on this future grace is by preparing our minds and also being sober-minded. That's exactly what Peter says. The second command is in verses 14 to 16 where he says to be holy before God. We are called to be obedient children, refusing to conform to the passions of our former ignorance. And then in verse 17, Peter says this. Another command, conduct yourselves in fear. The holy fear of God, you see, produces holy conduct. This is where Peter is going in this passage. He's concerned with how we live. He's concerned with our conduct. Our conduct, the way we live our lives, matters to God. And so today, once again, I want to encourage you to think deeply with what it means to live the Christian life. How are you living the Christian life? What does it look like for you to live the Christian life in what I like to call the marketplace of ideas? What is your testimony, young people, at school? What is your current attitude toward your employer? What thoughts do you have toward your boss? What is your conduct like at home? For young people, how are you responding to the authority that God has placed into your life called mom and dad? Our passage in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you might be surprised at this, contains no imperatives. In verses 18 and 19, there are no 
commandments. Rather, this passage includes the truth that literally undergirds all the imperatives that we just looked at in verses 13 to 17. The title of the message this morning is a one-word title. It's the only title that I think is appropriate for these verses, and the title of the message is Ransomed. I want to have you stand to your feet as we read the verses that we will pay close attention to in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. We have the context in mind, but Peter continues and says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's been a a great morning thus far, and I pray that as your spirit is here with us, that you would continue to enable us to, to worship in spirit and truth, that our worship would be rightly directed to the Father, that we would remember the the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ and remember your special ministry amongst us now, O Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would stir us up. We ask that you would encourage us. We ask that you would help us to see what it means to be a ransomed child of God. What a glorious reality it is. And so would you feed your people by the power of your word and encourage every person here in this auditorium, in Jesus' name, amen. As we consider Christian conduct, Christian living, we want to ask what is the key to what we might refer to as God-centered Christian living? In other words, what is the basis of our behavior? What is the motivation for obeying the commands that we looked at in verses 13 to 17? I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to give you the truth point in advance. I usually give you the truth point at the end because I want you to figure it out along the way and then have that aha moment. The aha moment comes now. We will work backwards and develop that truth point together. And that truth point is this, that we have been ransomed from our sin by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen to that. We have been we have been ransomed from our sin by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, before we unpack that mighty mighty sentence, I want to draw your attention to two words that are found in verse 18. Look with me at verse 18 and you'll see the first word is either knowing or no. The the word translated knowing comes from a Greek word that means this. It means to know someone or something and to experience that reality firsthand. To know something about someone or something and to experience, not just know about it, but to experience it firsthand. It means to to have an intuitive knowledge about something or someone. It means this, if I could could dig deeper into the meaning of this word, it means that we really know it. We really understand it. Let me illustrate. Some of you know that The most influential person in my life outside of any biblical writer 
or the Lord Jesus Christ is a man who was born in 1703. He died in 1758. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Here is a man who his ministry, his writing, his convictions, his role as a pastor, everything that took place in his life has literally affected me. But here's the problem. I've never met him. I may think I know him, but I don't really know him. You know what's really exciting? Is all of you who are in Christ will get a chance to meet my hero one day. It's going to be an amazing thing to be able to meet, to shake hands with Jonathan Edwards. But I don't truly know this man. Another illustration. A man who recently went to be with the Lord. And I will will show a a photograph. And my suspicion is a, a small, small, teeny tiny percentage of you will recognize this man. This is a man with his bride shortly after they were married. Does anyone recognize him? Let me show you another picture. This is a man who has also had a, a, a massive influence on my life. His name is Dr. R.C. Sproul. Now, he's a little bit different than Edwards because I actually had the opportunity to meet R.C. several times and to shake his hand and to engage with him and to ask him questions. So he, he's one step above Edwards in the sense that I know him, but do I really know him? Can I say that he's my buddy? He's my friend? Probably not. He probably doesn't remember meeting me. Here's another person who I have great admiration for. A little different than Jonathan Edwards and R.C. Sproul. (laughs) But come on, right? Here's a guy who had a lifetime batting average of 312. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, please believe me when I say that if you have a lifetime batting average of 312, that's the guy I want playing on my team, right? This is a guy who had 2,247 lifetime hits, 309 home runs. He had to wait year after year after year after year after year, did he not, Jack? To finally get inducted on the last year possible into baseball's Hall of Fame. On July 21st, mark it on your calendar, you will get to see my hero, Edgar Martinez, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. My father and my brother got a chance to meet him, got a baseball sign for me. It's on my desk. I didn't bring it because I don't want anyone to take it. (laughs) I actually put a picture of that online, and my dad called me up, and he said, Are you sure you really want to do that? Like, if someone finds out where that ball is, because now it's worth something. Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul, Edgar Martinez don't truly know these people. Now, my favorite photograph, and I did not receive permission to show this, but it's one, it, it might be my favorite photograph of this person that I've ever seen. Dreams like, uh-oh, let's, let's look at it. You graciously, you graciously sent Doreen and I to Edinburgh, Scotland a few years ago, and it was, it was just the, really, it was the highlight of our lives. And we, we sat on a rainy day in Edinburgh, and Dreen had this cup of hot chocolate loaded with whipped cream, and I took that picture, and it, it's, it's better when you see it on my computer. I mean, it is just absolutely stunning. Isn't she beautiful? 
Now, this is a woman who I know. I think I'm safe to say I know everything about her and I love everything about her. This is my bride, my wife, my best friend. She's the most important person in my life outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a person I truly know. And this is exactly the point I want to make about this passage is Peter the Apostle says, there's something important you need to know. Not in a Jonathan Edwards sense, not in an R.C. Sproul sense, not in an Edgar Martinez sense, but in a Doreen and Dave sense, in the sense that I really know her. There is to be an intimate knowledge, and that intimate knowledge concerns this, the ransom. The ransom. That's the second word I want to have you look at. In verse 18, knowing that you were, do you see it there? Ransomed. It's a word that means to set free by paying a price. It means to secure the release of someone by paying a ransom for their release. Now, this morning, we're going to see this passage has a massive impact in the way that you live your life. It will have a massive impact about the way you behave at school, about the way you behave around your friends, about the way you are with your parents, about the way you are with your employer, about the way you live the general tenor of your life. The key to Christ-centered conduct then is twofold. It involves knowing, we understand that now, It involves knowing what you have been ransomed from and whom you have been ransomed by. And so here's the first thing that we are charged with knowing intimately. Verse 18, we have been ransomed. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been ransomed. Now, Peter tells us exactly what we have been ransomed from. He says... You have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That phrase, futile ways, refers to, you get it, you guessed it, conduct. Conduct that in the final analysis is totally meaningless. It is totally futile. It is meaningless living. And here's what Peter tries to illustrate. He wants us to see that if you are a Christian, you have been ransomed from the slave market of sin. And I want to take a few minutes and have you look with me at the slave market of sin. And I want to have you get in the shoes or the sandals, if you will, of the Apostle Peter and imagine what is running through his mind, what is running through his heart as he pens these words in verse 18 and 19 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As you think about the slave market of sin, I I, want to engage all of your senses, not just your sight, not just your hearing, but I want to also engage, and I don't, I don't know where this came from, but I think it's entirely appropriate. I want to engage your sense of smell. Your sense of smell. You say, you lost me. Your sense of smell. I want you to, and I, I, I'm not joking at all. I want you to smell the stench, the horror of the slave market of sin. 
I have not had a chance, and Katie, I see Justin must be on turnaround. He's at work. I, I have not had a chance to share with Justin, and so I will share with you first, and maybe hang in there with me, Katie. I'll, I'll tell Justin. I want to tell him firsthand that Justin made a very generous offer um, a few months ago. You remember the Jam Kids came, and they decided to, to raise $500 through their sacrificial giving to help send me to Belarus? Just last week, I finally made uh, preparations to go back to Belarus next year, Mar- February and March of 2020. And the reason I tell that story is this, is that the first time I went to Belarus, I got home. And if you don't believe me, just ask Jereen. She knows exactly where I'm going. <laughs> She's snickering under her breath. She unzipped my suitcase. Now, you have to understand something. I'm a three shower a day kind of guy, right? I work out in the morning, take a shower. Sometimes I actually work out at lunch, take a shower. Sometimes I work out again after dinner, take another shower. It's a little weird, I know, right? I'm kind of a clean freak, right? I don't like bad smells, smell the stench, right? Doreen unzipped my suitcase and she was like, oh, where have you been? I said, I've been to Belarus. And you can all smell it when I come home. I'll be, if you'd like to come over, we'll unzip it. You know what it smells like? It, not to be crude, it's not B.O. It's the smell of the subway. It's the smell of the subway. That's exactly what wafts out of that suitcase. It's the smell of the underground subway system. And so the reason I share that story is I want you to get into this into this narrative, and I want you to smell the stench of the slave market of sin. There's several things that we see on this tour of the slave market of sin. Number one, the Bible tells us that every person outside of Christ lives in the slave market of sin. This morning, if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible has very bad news for you. The Bible says that if you are not a Christian, you live in the slave market of sin. Let me make it even more clear. The Bible says that if you are not a Christian, you are a slave to sin. Can you smell the stench? This is bad, bad, bad news. And I fear this is one of the missing elements in gospel proclamation in our generation. We forget to tell sinners that you are lost and without hope and without God, and you hate God and you despise God. And as Edward said, you're like a a poisonous snake spitting poison in the direction of a holy God. Edwards went this far. If you had the opportunity to, you'd kill God. That is within the heart of every unconverted person. Before I was converted, I wanted to kill God. I didn't know I wanted to kill God, but that is the portrait, the radical portrait of the unconverted heart. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That is the portrait of every unconverted person. Number two, The Bible also says that slaves then are dead in trespasses and sins. We saw that in our study several months ago, maybe over a year ago, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Number three, slaves then serve one master. If If you're not a Christian this morning, you only have one master. 
Your master is the warden of the slave market of sin, and his name is the devil. That's your master. Number four, the Bible says that every slave is under a curse. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be to everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. The Bible goes on to say that that curse is not something from a Disney movie. That curse is a real curse. And the curse results in a death sentence. And it's a death sentence that cannot be remedied by the kiss of a princess. It is a curse that can only be cured by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number five, slaves live in utter futility. They live in utter futility. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Number six, we're going quickly. Slaves search for freedom in all the wrong places. This is what you might refer to as self-salvation or works-based salvation. Some of you know the phrase sacerdotalism. Some of you came from a tradition that believed in sacerdotalism. That's a fancy way of saying that you can do some things in order to get saved. You participate in the mass. That's a con- contributing factor in your salvation. You take part in the Eucharist. That's a part- part- contributing factor in your salvation. You do good deeds. That's a contributing factor in your salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yesterday, Jereen and I were at Starbucks in Mount Vernon. And we, I ordered a drink for Jereen. And she got her very favorite drink, the green tea. And so we waited a few minutes, and I heard someone say, Dr. Steele, your drink is ready. And I went, and I got the tea for Jereen, and I gave it to her, and I told him, thank you very much. And a few minutes later, I heard, Dr. Steele. And I looked over, and it was a, it was a young man, very sharp young man. And I, I had already been impressed with his temperament and his personality and the way he was treating the customers. And he said, may I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And he said, uh, What was your doctorate in? And I said, well, theology. And he said, that's very interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. And I said, are you a student of theology? And he said, well, he goes, it's complicated. I said, really, how so? And he says, well, actually, he says, I I attend a Presbyterian church. And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. And he said, but I'm getting ready to change churches. And without naming the church, he said, I'm going to go to the XYZ church. And it it was a church that believes in sacerdotalism. It was a church that believes in works-based salvation. It was a church that repudiates the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And obviously, those of you that know me well know that now... Right? <laughs> I'm doing scenes from Shogun. Yeah, you know? Like, I want to talk. But the problem is this poor young man is behind the counter and we're not going to get into an apologetic evangelistic conversation. So I said, I would love to talk to you about that sometime. I I thought that was a pretty disciplined and measured response because I wanted to jump over the counter and say, don't do it. Right? But this is what is built into slaves 
in our culture, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for freedom in all the wrong places. You see, freedom is not found in a religious system. Freedom is not found at Christ Fellowship. Freedom is not found in the XYZ Church. Freedom is found in Jesus Christ, period. Number seven, slaves serve or bow down to their idols. The Bible says, men, why are you doing these things? Acts chapter 14, 15. We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that was in them. You see, John Calvin said it best. He said that every unconverted person has an idol factory beating in their chest. We pump out the idols day after day after day. And I understand that as we we look at the tour of the slave market of sin, this is a grim, gruesome tour. It is not a fun tour to talk about. But here's the great thing. The Bible gives us hope. Peter tells us that Christ's followers have been ransomed from the slave market of sin. They have been liberated. They have been set free. I want you to listen to a story by a man by the name of Dr. Sasha Rodmanovich. It's a parable that is told as follows. Dr. Sasha Rodmanovich was a 30-year-old physician in the former Soviet Union. During grad school at the University of Moscow, he married a wonderful woman by the name of Katya. They began their family early on and had two beautiful children, Anya and Olya, typical in every way. Dr. Sasha began his medical practice in 1931, just blocks away from Red Square in the shadow of St. Basil's Cathedral. He was living an ideal life. He had a great family, a great career. He had it all until the knock on the door. The men quickly dragged Dr. Sasha to a van outside and drove him away. The last thing he saw were his wife standing in the window and his two beautiful children faces pressed against the window of their flat or their apartment. He was driven in this van for what appeared to be hours. And when he arrived, he realized that as the doors opened, he had been taken to a work camp, otherwise known as a gulag. And he had heard of these terrible stories and these terrible places and had always been skeptical of their existence, but in less than a day, this successful doctor was a political prisoner, an enemy of the state. Sasha had had a few gold and silver coins stashed away in his wallet for emergencies. He pleaded with one of the guards, please let me go. I will give you one of my coins. But the guards just grabbed Sasha's coins and tossed them aside. His coins were worthless. His coins were perishable. His clothes were ripped from his back and were were replaced with a flimsy jumpsuit. He received a few pieces of bread each day and a small cup of water. He was cold and hungry and losing hope fast. One day, a guard approached him and led Sasha in the direction of the forest. Sasha knew what happened in the forest. He had heard stories of people who entered the forest and never returned. 
And so as he walked, he feared for his life. Here is a man who understands the definition of futility. Here is a man who understands bondage. You see, Dr. Sasha needed to be liberated. This is a man who who is in desperate need of being ransomed. And that leads us to the next important thing we need to know. We need to first of all realize that we have, as followers of Jesus Christ, been ransomed. But the second point is that we have been ransomed by Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, know that you have been ransomed by Christ. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, speaking of the ransom, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I want to show you two very important subheadings, subheadings that will give you a better grasp of who this Christ is. First, a portrait of the Savior. And as we examine this portrait of the Savior, I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ was uniquely qualified to stand in your place. First, I want you to see that God, God became a man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says this of Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is a New Testament and Old Testament concept that is being washed away in some translations. I should tell you this. Whenever a new translation of the Bible comes out, the first thing I do is I go to the four places in the New Testament to see if propitiation has been altered or eliminated. Isn't that interesting? Propitiation essentially means this. When the Lord Jesus stands in as our propitiation, he does two very important things. First, he affirms the love of God the Father. When Jesus dies on the cross in our place, he affirms the the magnanimous love of God the Father. The one who has existed from all eternity with the Son and with the Spirit For all eternity. But he does more than merely affirm the love of the Father. He absorbs 10,000 degrees of holy wrath. And he does it for every person who ever believes. Amen? Is the wrath of God is, is, is taken care of. Jesus Christ took the hit for every person who would ever believe. God becomes a man. But secondly, notice that he was indeed the Lamb of God. That's exactly what Peter refers to in verse 19. The Lamb of God. You'll remember in John one twenty nine, we read these amazing words. Behold the Lamb of God. Someone help me. Who takes away the sins of the world. One of my favorite stories, and some of you have heard me share this story, and the reason is because it's one of my favorite stories about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When they outgrew their facility in the mid-20th century in, in England, 19th century, sorry. When they outgrew their facilities, 
they ended up renting a facility called the Surrey Music Garden. And so Spurgeon was a little bit skeptical. He didn't know what this was going to look like. And so before the church service, before anyone arrived, he decided to wander up all by himself, and he wanted to check the acoustics. And so there he was, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, and he said as loud as he could, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had no idea that there was a workman up in the rafters who heard John one twenty nine, And guess what happened? He got saved. I would say that qualifies as a successful sermon with one point. It's amazing. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. The lambs that were offered under the terms of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament had very specific requirements, as you know. They were to be lambs that were free from defect. They were to be lambs that were free from blemish. This lamb, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, was, as Peter says in verse 19, do you see it? Without blemish or spot. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands your temptation. Jesus understands your trials. He was tempted in the same way as we are yet without sin. The Lamb of God perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law that we failed to keep, and he suffered on the cross for our sins. Almost 800 years, if you can think about this, almost 800 years before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the prophet Isaiah uttered these words. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, lived a life that we could never live, and he died a death that we all deserve to die. This is the portrait of the Savior The Lord Jesus Christ was uniquely qualified to stand in as our substitute. But there's a second heading, as I promised, and that is a portrait of his saving work. We've learned a little bit about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now I want to take a moment to look at this portrait of his saving work. You see... In biblical categories, there's two kinds of people, and I'll need to speak to in masculine categories, but this refers to every man and every woman and every boy and every girl. There is the category, first of all, of the old man, the old man or the old woman. I would never say that publicly, right? The old woman. That's not, you don't want to say that. That's highly offensive, right? I don't want to offend anyone. So the old man, if you are... A person who is the old man, if you're not a Christian, you are, as we've already discovered, a slave to sin. But then there's the new man, the new woman. This is a person who has been ransomed from the slave market of sin. And so Christ redeems his people from the slave market of sin. Notice what happens. Four things. 
One, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Do you ever feel like I'm just not measuring up? Well, remember this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Again, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus did that for his people. Number two, it gets better. Christ redeemed us from the the penalty of the law. Think about that. Jesus redeemed us from the penalty of the law. The law requires one thing for every person in this sanctuary. Someone yell it out. What does the law require? Death. Death. That's what the law requires. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, redeems us from the penalty of the law. Romans 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Christ redeems us from the penalty of the law. Number three, Christ redeems us from not only the penalty of sin and the curse of the law, but he redeemed us from sin's power. He redeems us from the power of sin. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self, here's the old man, the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. And so imagine with me, you stare that temptation in the face. It's financial temptation. It's relational temptation. It's sexual temptation. It's you fell in the blank and you want it. You need it. You got to have it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the power to say no. You have the power to walk away because the grace of God supplies your every need. Finally, the means of redemption, we see this in this passage, is the blood of Jesus Christ. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. Peter says, we are not redeemed by perishable things like gold or silver or self-effort. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Believe it or not, and I, I, I shudder when I hear this, I have heard people say that in the postmodern generation, people don't want to hear about the blood. Have you ever heard someone say that? I've heard preachers say people don't want to hear postmodern people, thinking people, educated people don't want to hear about the blood. Here's the problem. If you don't hear about the blood, you will perish in your sins. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so what are the benefits of being redeemed by the blood of Christ? I wish we could just do a sermon on each one of these, but let me give you several benefits and you can jot down the scriptures next to these important principles. First, our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7. 
We are brought near through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.12. We have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9. Our conscience is cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.14. We gain access, bold access, Hebrews 10.19 says, to God by the very blood of his Son. We are cleansed from remaining sin by the blood of Christ, 1 John chapter 1. And finally, Christ, you need to understand, purchased the church with his blood. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock. This is a charge to the elders. Pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You remember the truth point. We have been ransomed from our sin by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we think about this mighty reality Once again, it has bearing and impact on the way that we live our lives. It has a bearing on our behavior. Christ has purchased us. We, therefore, belong to him. We belong to him. It was several, several months ago, Dan Newton and I were talking about a a film that we were excited to see, Tortured for Christ, and I, I never got a chance to see it. I think it came for like, one day or something or two days. And so as a result, I didn't see it, but now it streams on Amazon prime. And so I started watching it yesterday. It's a story of pastor Richard Wormbrand, Romanian pastor during the days of the Soviet invasion. So here's this Lutheran pastor, godly man who one day, just like Dr. Sasha is going about his merry business and the Soviet army marches in to the tune of one million soldiers, marches into Romania, and almost overnight, Romania becomes a communist country overrun by Soviet dictatorship. In the film, there is a scene where the pastors are invited by the Soviet government to come into a theater and they are able to, to share where they're going to land, what their position is going to be. And so pastor after pastor after pastor, they capitulate. And they end up giving in to the whims of the Soviet government. Because this new totalitarian regime says, we will give the clergy a pay increase. And so these pastors compromise. And in a stunning scene, the pastor leans over to his wife and says, you do understand that if I get up and say the right thing, you will no longer have a, no longer have a, a, a husband. Read. I mean, use your imagination. And his wife says something that just absolutely stunned me. She said, that may be true but I don't need a coward for a husband. He got up off, off his seat and he went forward and he began to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Long story short, he ends up in a prison cell and was beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten. And in the first scene of the movie, they show Richard, Richard Warmbrand all tiled, uh, 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 tied up really in a ball 
feet outstretched over a long pole, hanging upside down, no shoes on his feet, and they're beating him mercilessly with a switch. Beating after beating after beating. And then the Soviet soldier says to Pastor Wormbrand, you belong to us now. You belong to us. Richard Wormbrand says with a bloodied face and feet that are reduced to hamburger meat. He says, I belong to another. I belong to Christos. I belong to Jesus. And so I want to challenge you with this theme of ransom, this truth of ransom. How should the ransom people of God respond to this great reality? I want to offer four points of application very briefly. Number one, ransomed people never forget what they have been delivered from. When you learn the essence of what it means to be ransomed from the slave market of sin, you never forget what you have been delivered from. As a result, ransomed people are joyful people. They're joyful people. You remember the old hymn, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. It's impossible to sing that song with a scowl on your face, right? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Number three, ransom people worship the one who set them free. Luke chapter 168. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Finally, ransomed people. This is the clincher, by the way. Ransomed people obey the one who set them free. It was the mid-80s when John MacArthur published his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and it just, the, the, the firestorm exploded. Personally, I think, I think the embers are still glowing rather brightly because MacArthur, in a couple hundred pages, basically said this, if you're a Christian, you need to understand Jesus is Lord. If you're a Christian, you are obligated by definition to obey Jesus, and it exploded. And I wonder, why did it explode? It's the most basic of all realities. If you have been ransomed, you by definition obey the one who sets you free. You see, if you have been ransomed, it changes everything. It changes your relationships. It changes your pursuits. It changes your desires. It changes your conduct. Most of all, it changes your status before a holy God. Some of you who are thinking deeply as I shared the story about Dr. Sasha are wondering... You don't like any loose ends in a story. What happened to Dr. Sasha? And the answer is, I'm not sure. Because Dr. Sasha is you, and Dr. Sasha is me. You see, most of us have never been unjustly arrested, sent to the gulag, and tortured. But each of us, every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this auditorium was born in a gulag of sorts. We are sinners by nature and choice. Sin has enslaved every person. Therefore, every person is in dire need of liberation. We need to be ransomed. We need to be ransomed. We have been ransomed from our sin by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, 
not everyone in this congregation, not everyone in this room tonight or this afternoon has been ransomed. Some of you are still trapped in the slave market of sin. But remember this, Christ came to set the prisoner free. He came to liberate the captives. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to watch a documentary, and I I had no idea when I got to the end of the documentary, I would utter these words. It is the most riveting, powerful, intense documentary that I have ever seen in my life. Would you like to know the title? Title of this documentary is Free Solo. It's a documentary about a young man who has a dream of climbing to the top of El Capitan. Have you seen El Capitan? 3,600 feet. It's not a hill. It's 3,600 feet straight up. And his dream, many people have done it, but he wants to do it without ropes. Let's look at it. There he is. Do some of you remember the sermon I preached where I put the ladder up against the wall and we talked about the the evil of works-based salvation and sacerdotalism? That's the scariest message I've ever preached in my life because I got about four steps up. I do not do heights. Look at this guy. And this is a spoiler alert. If you don't want to know what happened, just plug your ears for about five seconds. He did it. He made it to the top without any help, all by himself, no ropes, no nothing. It was amazing. And here's the thought that struck me. While Alex Hanold climbed to the top of El Capitan without ropes and lived to tell about it, you need to remember this, that living without Christ is like trying to climb to the top of El Capitan without ropes. Not one person has ever done it. No one will ever do it. It is the most futile, foolish thing that a person could ever do. Yet people do it all the time. They think they can earn their salvation. They think they can do good works to find favor before a holy God. And so I would close by asking you this question. Are you numbered among the ransomed? Will you cry out to him and trust him this morning? Will you cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Will you be the one who will ransom me today? Will you deliver me from the slave market of sin? I turn from my sin and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became my substitute on the cross so that I would have eternal life and live as a free man, a free woman, a free boy, a free girl. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for these riveting realities. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly came to to ransom your people from their sin. My special prayer this morning, God, is that for anyone who has yet to enter the realm of the ransomed, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would understand that it doesn't require money, it doesn't require work, it doesn't require effort. It requires simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is we're called in Scripture to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to recognize that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So would you do a mighty work in the heart of a 
of a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, a whole group of people, all for your glory. And for those who are followers of Christ, Lord, I pray that we would live like we are ransomed, that we would recognize that the ransomed obey the one who ransomed them. The ransomed have a passion to worship the living God. And so would you stir up this congregation to love you and worship you and serve you, but also to obey you. All for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen.